Oh, bitch. Get out the way. Get out the way, bitch. Okay, I'm recording. Sorry. You didn't want to hear that. Right. Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter. This is episode 119. We're recording this on the 27th of July, 2023 in Australia, 26th of July, 1856 in Virginia. Going backwards. Yes. yes. How are you, my little buddy? I am currently not melting, so... Well, how about you? Most, yeah. most of the Northern Hemisphere is hottest month in recorded history. Yeah, yes, yes. To this month, July. So we're fucked. Human race right. is officially fucked. Right. Congratulations. All, yeah. Congratulations, Republicans, yeah, yeah. Liberal yeah. Party, yeah. Conservative, uh, Rupert Murdoch, uh, everyone who's done their best to prevent us from doing anything about climate change over the last 30 or so years. We're yes. fucked. We are Maybe fucked. that's something that America and China could get, you know, the two biggest greenhouse producers, I think. Maybe we could get together and this could be a, a common threat to bridge some kind of understanding. I was just joking. Yeah. There's going to be yeah. a war in, in the future. Anyway, no, but, you were fucked, so let's just enjoy the ride down. But at least your country's having congressional hearings on the existence of UFOs, so you're focusing <laughs> on the big issues there. Well, you got you got to choose your your priorities between that and watching Mitch McConnell have a moment. Mm, yeah, it's been an entertaining it's been an entertaining week for me. Any updates on that today? I haven't checked the news. Uh, oh, there was some. No, there's no official word, but there's there seems to be one. I, I don't know what the heck they're called. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use the term brain surgeon was on TikTok going, hey, I've been doing this for 20 years. I watched the video. He's had a couple of falls. Uh, yeah, I think it was. And they, of course, they use this long Latin word for low something stroke where it doesn't make you fall down or lose control of your body. It's but clearly. A, it's called a Ray Harrison. Pull the red? Yeah, I thought it was a Ray. He just like said nothing for five minutes. And, I was like, okay. And what I did when I was watching, I was yelling, trademark, motherfucker. Yeah. I got on the phone to his staff and said, yeah, he went, does he want to do a podcast? Yeah. He's clearly qualified. I yeah, got nothing. So. <laughs> Where are we? Let's talk about some serious shit. Stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay. So let's start. Yeah. Ray, Ray sends me TikToks from time to time. Not of himself jerking his dick, but usually... No. Not often no, enough, but, those, but not yeah. on TikTok. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Other stuff I'm that proud. he thinks I'll find interesting. I'm going to play one <laughs> that he sent me a week or two ago. This is by a guy called, whose TikTok is Mr. Global 2. Mm. Uh, according to his profile, he uh, works in the oil and gas industry, a VP yeah. of some big oil and gas firm. Starts off with him playing a clip from some guy on, I don't know, television, some reporter, some journalist. Right. Uh, mouthpiece and then he then he yeah. then he does a commentary on it so let's play this it'll go for a couple of minutes you energy officials are now holding secret talks with exxon oh clayton man i'd love to come on your show and teach you how the world works yeah so clayton here said the u.s involvement in ukraine is because we want their oil and gas that's what it's all about and if you've seen this guy you know he's a putin sympathizer yeah for sure now, the war in Ukraine is all about the natural resources of Ukraine, but that's not why the U.S. is involved. That is why Russia attacked Ukraine. 
See, before Russia took Crimea, Ukraine got most of its natural gas from Russia. The reason Russia took Crimea is because they couldn't agree on a contract for gas prices. So Russia just took Ukraine's largest natural gas field by force with their military. 80% of the natural gas Ukraine is Crimea. That's why they took it. And now they want the rest of it because there is more newly discovered natural resources in Ukraine. And the worst thing that could happen to Russia is for Ukraine to become a big player in the energy market with oil and natural gas, because that would be the country that would get to export all of that throughout Europe and not Russia. That is why Russia is trying to take Ukraine, period. So that's the essence of the, the video and his argument. Now, well, so what I'm going to do today is try and dissect that and drill down into some of the, the, the facts and the details and different perspectives on it that I've come across in my research. Right. The first thing is obviously there's an element of truth to what he said. And we, we've said from the beginning of this war 18 months ago that it had to do with energy supply, oil and gas. But, and, and you know, Russia has some interests in that. Ukraine has interests in that. The U.S. and their allies have interests oh, in yeah. that. But it's not as simple as Mr. Global 2 is making out in his uh, little TikTok there. Right. So I want to, first of all, talk about the sequence of events. And just starting with uh, the Anacrimea, which happened in 2000. Mm -hmm. You can't talk about that without talking about the fact that it happened after the 2014 Maidan Revolution, or the Revolution of Dignity, I think, as they've, as Barry and Stan Ooh, call it, I, came up with that, yeah. Now, which, as we've explained in the past, looks like either a US-engineered coup or a US-supported coup. I don't know if I told you this. I think I have, though, but my editor in Ukraine, Dennis, he and I mm -hmm. were having a conversation about the 2014 coup. Now, he's only in his mid-20s, so he was probably 10 or 11 when that happened, 12-something. Right. But I asked him if he was aware of the recorded phone call of the you know, U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, I think she was at the time, and mm -hmm. talking about how they were going to select the incoming government of Ukraine when all that happened. He hadn't even heard of that. Wasn't aware wow. of that blackout. Right. Oh, I don't know if it's a blackout on that in Ukraine, but he wasn't aware yeah. of it. But we are. Now, that, that revolution slash coup was designed to replace the Yanukovych government, which was pro-Russian, with a pro-US, pro-NATO, pro-EU government. Yanukovych wanted to join the EU, but, and there was, yeah. I mean, what, what supposedly started that revolution was that he made a decision not to join the EU. He was moving in that direction that made a decision yeah. not to, because he said he didn't want to upset Russia. Russia had said, if you do yeah. that, our relationship's going to be seriously fractured. And he went, okay, well, let's not do that then. And then yeah. this revolution broke out. A lot of people were shot by snipers after he was at Oosted, Oustman, no investigations ever been completed into that. Biden came in, Zelensky came in, all of that kind of stuff happened. And it, all, all of the, assassination right. of people that happened during that coup by sources unknown from rooftops mm -hmm. seems to have um, just disappeared. No one's looked into it. Right. So, but the tensions, not only in Ukraine, but in Crimea, that's what I want to focus on in this episode. Go back 
obviously a lot further, right back to the dissolution of the USSR in the early 90s. Mm. First of all, let's remind people where Crimea sits geographically, Ray. Where, where is Crimea? Sum it up for people so they can picture it in their tiny little monkey brains. Yeah, that's, well, yeah, because it used to be a part of Russia. It's, it was the, the part that connected true Russia to Europe. It's just to the west of Russia, and I think it also touches Poland as well. And there's Belarus in there as well. So basically, if you want to be, just to have an idea, between Europe and Russia would be a starting point for that. Touches Poland? Where does it touch Poland? Or maybe I'm thinking of something else. I'm sorry. I don't know. I just know it's, you know, in, in there somewhere. You having a McConnell moment? Don't you have yeah. having a Mitch McConnell <laughs> yes. moment? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. So Crimea's basically like not quite an island almost a little island little jutting peninsula that oh, you said crimea i was thinking ukraine dude i'm sorry i apologize yeah that's all I right Mitch. you just yeah you just go back to whatever it is that you Stare, were doing before i asked you a into question the abyss. yeah I was just mm, like, anyway yeah. i apologize yeah the little islands that's out in the black sea i apologize yeah not quite an island it, it, it it's sits in the Black Sea, it's right. sort of like, I, I think of it as the ball sack of Ukraine. So it just, yes. it, it hangs down underneath Ukraine, right. ball it's sack. It's an old man's ball sack. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And it's kind of equidistant from Russia. So the northern tip of Crimea, Crimea so juts up against Ukraine. There's actually mm -hmm. a small land bridge between the two. Right. The eastern tip of it juts up against a place called Anapa in Russia, so the western so part of Russia that juts into the Black Sea. So it is actually attached to Ukraine, but it's very also very close. You know, you could you could swim from Russia to uh Crimea. Would recommend yeah. it, but you but you could. <laughs> yeah. Make it shot at. In 1990, as uh Gorbachev was doing Glasnost and Perestroika and the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union was uh, starting to come into effect, mm -hmm. Soviet of the Crimean Oblast, because it had been part of the USSR, proposed the restoration of what they called the Crimean ASSR, or the Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic, mm. which had originally been created by the Bolsheviks in 1921, but then Crimea became part of the USSR the following year, when Ukraine right. did. It had been like a an independent country, going back, way back, I think the the Russians took it over in like the late 1700s originally. So the Bolsheviks created like a, a, an autonomous district there before it got rolled into the USSR. Anyway, in, they conducted a referendum in Crimea in 1991 and did decide to become an autonomous republic again. 1992, they renamed it the Republic of Crimea. So hmm. it wasn't part of Ukraine. It was, it became part of Russia back in the late 1700s. And mm. then it was part of the Soviet Union. And then it became, in 1991, it became an, an independent republic again. Gotcha. Okay. So, attached to Ukraine, but became, it wanted to become an independent republic. I think mm -hmm. that's the first thing for people to understand is it's not like it was part of Ukraine. It was an independent republic. Right, That's how gotcha. they had a referendum and they decided to be an independent republic. But a mm -hmm. day after they made that decision, got yeah. huge pressure from Ukraine. The Crimean parliament inserted a new sentence into the constitution 
the new mm. constitution that declared that Crimea was part of Ukraine. Oh. So wow. a lot of pressure from Ukraine to for them to say, okay, we're part of Ukraine, but we're independent. We're autonomous. Right. Good luck. With In that. 1994, Crimea elected their first president, a guy called Yuri Meshkov. He was pro-Russian. He uh, was trying to figure out how to merge Crimea into Russia. Right. But he was attacked by the Crimean establishment, had his powers degraded, uh, a lot of pressure from Ukraine against him. He ended up dissolving parliament and wow. asserting control over Crimea. The whole thing was a was a shit show very early mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. in their autonomous post-Soviet Union independence. And in 1995, the Ukrainian parliament inserted mm -hmm. themselves, scrapped the Crimean constitution, abolished mm -hmm. the post of president, and exiled Meshkov from the country. Uh, wow. Ukrainian special forces actually entered his residence, disarmed his bodyguards, and put him on a plane to Moscow. It's a one-way trip. So a little heavy-handed. A little heavy-handed. Yeah. But uh, the point uh, here I wanted to make is <laughs> the decision of the Crimean people was they wanted to be an autonomous republic. Ukraine stepped in and prevented that, you know, inserted themselves in them. Right. So in 1995, the Ukrainians forcibly basically abolished the Republic of Crimea, mm -hmm. and they called it the Autonomous Republic of Crimea, but part Ukraine, and it was under Ukrainian authority. Right. Kov was replaced by a guy called Anatoly Franchuk, who was appointed by Kiev. And his job was basically to rein in Crimea's aspirations to be independent. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the problems the Russians had with all of this was the Soviet or the former Soviet Black Sea Fleet, because it was right. based in Crimea. Awkward. So they're like, oh, yeah. hold on. We're, we've got, we've got, our <laughs> Navy nowhere, is there. Yeah. To, right. uh, you're an independent. So you, Ukraine obviously also took their independence in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, and, right. but the the Russian fleet is based in this little sort of peninsula that is now supposedly part of Ukraine or controlled by Ukraine. Right. So Russian President Boris Yeltsin at the time and Ukraine's President Leonid Leonid decided to divide the Black Sea fleet between Russia and Ukraine between their respective navies. That makes sense. Yeah. You get a bit, we get a bit. They're all yeah. they're they're all going to be based in the same place, and so, yeah, we'll just yeah. we'll just share them. Sharesies exactly. is what they do, they call it. <laughs> title Sharesies. Now there was this thing in 1997 they signed off on called the Treaty of Friendship, Cooperation, and Partnership, which coincidentally is also what Ray and I signed ten years ago. And blood, and bodily fluids. Yes. So so this is going to turn out fine. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Which was about dividing up the Black Sea Fleet. Tensions eased off. Moscow right. recognized Ukraine's borders, recognized their territorial integrity, and the use of military facilities in Sevastopol on a 20-year lease. It was okay. given to Russia. And they got about okay. they got about 80% of the Black Sea Fleet went to Russia. That makes sense. They can afford it. Then in 2010, Russia and Ukraine signed a thing called the Kharkiv Pact, which extended 
Russia's lease on right. the this area in Sevastopol where the Black Sea Fleet was based in mm-hmm. return for discounted natural gas. Ah, okay. All right, now we're getting there. Okay. Right. So that's a little bit of the history of the control of Crimea since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, then let's remember, putting this into context, that in the mid to late 90s, under the Clinton administration, the US started adding countries to NATO. Right. Going against their promises to Russia in the beginning, early part of the 90s, that they wouldn't do that. And despite protests from Boris Yeltsin, initially and mm-hmm. then in the 2000s from Vladimir Putin and right. and then and and from the sidelines Mikhail Gorbachev and from people like George Kennan etc that we've talked about before saying yeah hold on you're not supposed to do yeah. that you said you wouldn't right. do that this is breaking the spirit of the agreement we know it yeah. wasn't written into any contractual documents but everyone right. agrees today that the US and the UK and NATO did tell Russia that they wouldn't expand towards their borders but they did So in the early 2000s, things started to heat up again around the world. There was the Mm so-called color revolutions that occurred Mm. in the post-Soviet states, particularly in Ukraine, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, and also in Serbia. There were attempts at them in Belarus and Moldova. And these were seen by Russia and by many international analysts as US-sponsored coups in these countries. Sounds right. I've read this before, but I'll read it again because it's worth reading. Ian Traynor, the late, great Scottish journalist and the editor of The Guardian in Europe, based in Europe for decades, he wrote in The Guardian in 2004, this is what he said, but while the gains of the orange-bedecked chestnut revolution are Ukraine's, this is after the first coup there in 2004, The campaign is an American creation, a sophisticated and brilliantly conceived exercise in Western branding and mass marketing that, in four countries in four years, has been used to try to salvage rigged elections and topple unsavory regimes. Funded Mm. and organized by the U.S. government, deploying U.S. consultancies, pollsters, diplomats, the two big American parties, and U.S. non-government organizations, the campaign was first used in Europe in Belgrade in 2000 and to beat Slobodan Milosevic at the ballot box. Richard Miles, the U.S. ambassador in Belgrade, played a key role. And by last year, as U.S. ambassador in Tbilisi, he repeated the trick in Georgia, coaching Mikhail Shakashvili in how to bring down Edward Shevard Nazi. Wow. I did not see that coming. Months after the success in Belgrade, the U.S. ambassador in Minsk, Michael Kozak, a veteran of similar operations in Central America, notably in Nicaragua, organized a near-identical campaign to try to defeat the Belarus hardman Alexander Lukashenko. That one failed. There will be no Costa Rica in Belarus, the Belarus president declared, referring to the victory in Belgrade. But experience Mm. gained in Serbia, Georgia, and Belarus has been invaluable in plotting to beat the regime of Leonid Kuchma in Kiev. The operation, Engineering Democracy Through the Ballot Box and Civil Disobedience, is now so slick that the methods have matured into a template for winning other people's elections. Wow. Okay. Now, which makes seems natural, like it's homegrown or something. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. One guy's opinion, 
but you know, he, and he died sadly some years after that, but yeah, he was a highly respected editor and journalist for the Guardian based in mm-hmm. Europe. And he's not the only person that believed in the US. You know, Chomsky and Mearsheimer and all these guys that are critics of US foreign policy have pointed to the same things. Right. So that, those things are going on in the two, mm-hmm. obviously, also in the early 2000s, we had the US invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan designed to topple the regimes in those countries. Mm-hmm. They were expanding NATO towards Russia and just overthrowing governments around the world that they didn't like. Then, right. 2010 to 2012, we have the Arab Spring, where they're doing the same thing in Arab countries. Gaddafi mm-hmm. is overthrown in Libya in 2007, seen by many as a US-engineered coup. Hillary Clinton famously then went on... I don't know, CNN or something, and said, we came, we saw he died and then cackled like the Wicked Witch of the West. God. So you put yourself in Putin's shoes, watching all of this happen. He comes to power as prime minister in 99 and then as president a couple of years later of Russia. He's Mm -hmm. watching the US just, you know, post the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah, just gobble up everything. Pac-Man. Yeah. Pac-Manning their way around the parts of the world they don't already control, just right. overthrowing governments left, right, and center. And why? Okay, so if you if you take a U.S. perspective on this, it's to spread democracy and freedom, et cetera, et cetera. Damn the right. other way of looking at it, the skeptical way of looking at it, is yeah. that they're gobbling up the economies of these countries. They're yes. opening them up to American businesses, American export and imports, open trade. And, and you know, okay, now we're going to supply you with this, that, and the other, and we're going to get your natural resources, et cetera, et cetera. Bringing exactly. them into the, the American global banking system, bringing them into global export and, and import uh, markets for U.S. companies, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's part uh, markets, of the economic block. Exactly. Yeah, it pretty much comes down to markets and resources. We want those. We want access to those. So, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, we, we've gotten good at it. Mostly. And if... And as the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman said, the basic model is, if you don't give us what we want, we'll just come and take it, you know, one way or the other. We will will get what we want. The the original, not the original, but the best known, look, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. It doesn't really matter to me. I'm going to be in a jet, so it doesn't really matter. I'm just going to be watching from a satellite. But yeah, so we take what we want because no one can stop us. So this is all going on in the 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 2000s, right. the 2010s. In Ukraine, there was the first coup in 2004, sort of got overturned in 2010 when Yanukovych became president, defeating Yulia Tymoshenko, who was his competitor in that, mm-hmm. former prime minister of Ukraine. Then in 2014, they have another revolution slash coup in Ukraine, the one that we talked about earlier, where right. uh, the US the Deputy Secretary of State was seen, well, it was recorded, stitching up mm-hmm. who the incoming government was going to be. Right. From all, for all intents and purposes, it looks like a US-engineered coup. Ian Traynor was sadly dead by that stage, so he couldn't comment on it. Now, meanwhile, during Yukashenko's era, when he was president and Timoshenko was PM, there was... Uh, a gas dispute 
between Russia oh. and Ukraine in 2000 and was sort of indicating in his mm -hmm. TikTok. Ukraine had right. started buying gas from Russia via a Swiss intermediary that was allegedly partly owned by Ukrainian-born Russian mafia boss of bosses, Semyon Molovich, oh who we've, we've talked about in earlier episodes, allegedly also involved in some of these Ukrainian coups that have gone on. Billions. He's still around, by the way, Molovich. Still, still wow. going strong. Doesn't get talked about a lot in the uh, probably prefers in the media. it that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Billions. Basically, he or this this intermediary firm inserted themselves between Ukraine and Russia. Ukraine's buying gas right. from Russia. Then they start buying it from this intermediary owned by a number of companies and and this mafia boss. Mm -hmm. Millions of hadn't been paid to Russia. The intermediary was taking the money and then it was just disappearing. Shit. So contracts were halted. Russia said, we're not going to send you gas. There's this huge shit show. Oh, fun fact. Semyon Molyevich, the mafia boss of bosses right. over there, his attorney in the United States, Here we all of this, Right. Was William S. Sessions, director of the FBI from 1987 to 1993. What a quinky dink. Yeah. And, ju and just to let everybody know, just to, to, to give you a date, it was June of uh, 2014 that Russia quit sending supplies to Ukraine because, yeah, there was a hefty bill that was due. They weren't getting paid. So why they should, should they keep sending their resources when they can sell it to somebody else? Yeah. Anything else you want to say? I've been talking. I've been doing all of the talking. It's just, it's just well, we're going to get into this later, I'm sure. But I just want to. I just want to set this up for later. So overall, I like Mr. Global. I like his content. I, he seems to be a, in, in some ways, centrist, whatever. But I was a little disappointed, especially in the in the clip that you played, because no decision, especially a decision to go to war generally is is based off a single factor. Normally there's lots of different little decisions that, that can coalesce into pressure or whatever. The one that you pointed out obviously was where Putin and the gentleman Gorbachev, I think it was or Yeltsin before him, this has been going on for like two decades. They're like, look, quit trying to surround and cut off and contain Russia. Cold War's over. We're not your enemy. Cut it the shit out. But Americans, I think we just get stuck in Cold War mentality. And so we keep going. The point I'm trying to make is I seriously doubt if this war, which made is made a pariah of Russia, is over just one thing like oil. Was that probably was that a factor? Absolutely. But again, when your enemy who is sworn publicly that they are your enemy keeps coming closer and closer to you, eventually you have to do something. A trapped mouse, a cornered mouse will fight. Uh, a drowning man will grab at the tip of a sword, all that kind of thing. Russia had to do something or America was just going to keep going. I'm, I'm sure you're going to get to that later. I just wanted to make that a, that comment about Mr. Global because overall, I do really like his content. Yeah, he's very entertaining. But, yeah. you know, might be accused of oversimplifying things a little bit. Exactly, exactly. So after the 2014 coup in Ukraine, there were actually massive protests in Crimea. Militias were formed. And Crimea, mm -hmm. we have to point out, was mostly Russian-speaking people, yeah. Russian ethnic origins. 
mm-hmm. of the 2014 census, about 68% of the population were ethnic Russians, 15% wow. were ethnic Ukrainians. So yeah, with all of that background, there's another US coup in Ukraine in 2014, and Russia decided to step in to protect their interests and the Russian people in Crimea, which, right. let's remember, back in the early 90s, had decided to be autonomous until Ukraine stepped in and shut it down. The Black Sea base is there. Yes, they have some gas resources off the coast, etc. But there's a lot more to it than just Russia went to Crimea to take the gas. There was all of this stuff happening, the US overturning governments left, right and centre. Russia Mm -hmm. seems to have made the decision with some justification that Crimea is mostly Russian people who were unhappy about the coup happening, like they did in the Donbass region. There was mm-hmm. people arcing up in the Donbass region. There were people arcing up in Crimea as well after the US coup. That's the thing that doesn't get talked about whenever this gets right. brought up in the Western media is you know, what preceded the, the turbulence yeah. in Donbass region and in Crimea. And in Georgia and South Ossetia, places like that. So, but talking about, I want to talk now about the the energy wars. Now, mm-hmm. it's true that for, for decades, the Western Russia have been waging a, an economic war over the supply of oil and gas to Europe and Asia. The US and Russia were the world's largest oil producers in 1900. Mm-hmm. And today, they're still the world's largest oil producers. Most people don't realize that we still, we, you know, we tend to think of Saudi Arabia, the OPEC countries as the world's largest oil producers. It's actually the U S and Russia as the world's largest oil producers. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's this old saying, geology is destiny. Yes. You know, the country's natural resources determines to a large extent how economically and therefore militarily important and successful you're going to be. Yes. Yeah. Particularly if you have the ability to export your natural resources to other parts of the world. It's all about the money, honey. People have to have that. Yes. It's all about the oil, you schmoil. That's my other favorite saying. Okay. We could do some work. We'll, we'll, we'll put that on the back burner for now. Okay, we'll get Barry and Stan out of that one. So, you know, even after, you know, everything that's gone on in the last right. 100 years, revolutions, world wars, the rise, wars, of, the the rise yes. of the Middle East, the, the yeah. end of the Soviet empire, et cetera, et cetera, the U.S. and Russia. Now, the U.S.'s position as one, as one of the largest is because of the shale oil revolution that's happened, and that's right. running out, that's coming to an end. So they're not going to hold that position um, for much longer. So that's Mm -hmm. also part of the U.S.'s uh, concerns and interests in here too. Absolutely. So there's always an element of truth if we say anything about energy supply issues being part and parcel of wars. It's always, yeah, there's always something to do with economics when it comes to wars, as we've been saying for years. Nearly every war ever fought ever is about money, economics in some way, shape or form. But it gets packaged up for the great oh, masses. Yeah. It's about religion. It's about democracy. It's about freedom. It's about whatever the Barry and Stan packaged up buzzword <laughs> is, whatever they think that they can sell. But really, when you yes, scratch the yes. surface, 
It's like right. having a scratchy ticket. It's got like right. a shiny, shiny picture of Jesus on the top. But if you yes. scratch it off oh. with a with right. a coin underneath yeah. it, you see it's it's really about money. Well, it's his gold. Sometimes when I scratch, I get myrrh, but I'm I'm still looking for the gold. But I love those G- Jesus lotto tickets. Love them. And in the 2000s, the pipeline wars started, mm-hmm. where they were trying to build pipelines that were. Uh, undercut somebody's ability or, or, or would increase somebody's ability to be able to export gas and oil to different markets. In 2006, the West won the first battle of the pipeline wars mm-hmm. when the baku Shehan pipeline began to carry oil from Azerbaijan to the West, which right. was a blow to Russia because they had sort of a stranglehold on the Caspian Sea which is where most of the oil uh, and gas transit mm-hmm. lanes were. Right. So they, so the West built this pipeline through to through Turkey, connected Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan, with Shehan, which is in Turkey, via mm-hmm. Georgia. This was uh-huh. a, a U.S.-led coup, basically, in terms right. of supplying oil and gas to the West. Mm-hmm. They, they could get it via a non-Russian pipeline. This is part of the US's attempts to break the amount of revenue or take over some of the revenue that Russia was getting from supplying oil and gas. But then Putin won the next skirmish about five years later (laughs) when he built the Nord Stream, so 50 mile long pipeline across the Baltic Sea to Germany. Right. It allowed Russia to bypass Ukraine and Poland you know, their relations uh, with both haven't been great, particularly as the US has been trying to take over Ukraine. He yes. get its natural gas directly to Europe. We know what mm-hmm. happened with Nord Stream. Either yeah. the US or Ukraine mm-hmm. blew it up. Right. Or the aliens that were found this week. We're not sure. Still working on it. Or but the Russians probably. blew it up themselves for unknown yes. reasons. Exactly. So now as I, the... Yeah. Yeah. No, go ahead. Sorry. Mitch McConnell moment. You just want to stare at me for a bit? I always stare at you deep, deep into your eyes or your navel, whatever, whatever. Now, as for the energy side of the 2022 invasion of Ukraine, that has been a narrative that I've seen in the Western media over the last 18 months. March of 2022 in the New York Times, the newspaper of dubious record, Brett Stevens, one of their opinion columnists, wrote an article basically making this argument that it, that the invasion of Ukraine was all about trying to get access to Ukraine's energy resources. He right. wrote, suppose for a moment that Putin never intended to conquer all of Ukraine, that from the beginning, his real targets were the energy riches of Ukraine's east, which contain Europe's second largest known reserves of natural gas after mm-hmm. Norway's. Combine that with Russia's previous territorial seizures in Crimea, which has huge offshore energy fields, and the eastern provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk, which is Donbass, which contain part of enormous shale gas field, as well as Putin's bid to control most or all of Ukraine's coastline, and the shape of Putin's ambitions become clear. He's less interested in reuniting the Russian-speaking world than he is in securing Russia's energy dominance. Oh, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me. Yes, Junior Mitch McConnell. Could one argue that another way to 
tighten or improve the security of your country, if you're Russia or whoever and you feel threatened, is to do something to not only push your troops further out from your capital, but also to do something that will bring in more money so you can buy more arms, you can have a bigger army, you can have more battleships and bombers and fighters and things like that. So why does it have to be a simplistic single move? Why can't it be like two birds, one stone? I'm going to take what I need. I'm also going to make sure that the NATO troops or Western troops don't come any closer than I want. I mean, in Putin's mind, to me, that would make perfect sense. I get two things out of this. How is this? Yes, the West is going to be pissed off, but how is this not good for me, at least in two very big ways? And the third part of that is Mm -hmm. if you're able to take assets, natural resources from the country that's on your border that your enemy keeps trying to take over, if you can secure those, it means there's less revenue for that country, which makes them more dependent on international charity which is hard to justify long-term. Exactly. Um, so, like, yeah, yeah there's, there's lots of ways that that makes sense from a Putin perspective. But whether or not the war is all about him trying to grab Ukraine's natural resources yeah. uh, and much. discounting the whole NATO side of things. Thank you. Like this yeah. whole thing about rebuilding the Russian-speaking world and uniting Bullshit. the Russian empire. Bullshit. Yeah. He himself has said on many occasions that you can't rebuild the USSR or you can't rebuild the Russian empire. That doesn't make any sense. History shows he's, he's right. Foreign policy, the sort of official mouthpiece of us foreign policy in April, 2022 wrote Mm -hmm. an article, which also tried to make the same argument as Brett Stevens. They said Russia's motives for invading Ukraine vary from security fears to revisionist historical claims that a Ukrainian national identity does not exist. Energy Mm. security also looms large. In particular, Russian President Vladimir Putin's determination to ensure the continued flow of Russian oil and gas to European markets, including through Ukraine's pipelines. But the far bigger prize eyed by Russia may be Mm -hmm. Ukraine's extraordinary resource riches, including some of the largest energy, mineral, and agricultural assets in the world. Uh, Yeah. The Rand Group Mm -hmm. wrote an article rebutting this theory in April 22. This is written by Christina Marchinek. She's a Polish Rand analyst, and I've got to point out, Putin critic. Right. Uh, I follow her on Twitter. I read her stuff in Rand. Um, She's definitely no fan of, of Putin. Right. This is what she says. She's referring to Brett Stevens' article in the New York Times. When squinted at from afar, Stevens' argument appears to have a certain narrative logic to it. The problems with this narrative seem to begin, however, as soon as one grapples with the basic facts on the ground. Ukraine does indeed control Europe's second largest known reserves of natural gas, almost 80% of which are located east of the Dnipro River. However, these reserves amount to less than 3% of Russia's total natural gas reserves. Ah, context. And though Ukraine theoretically might have considerable shale gas reserves, they remain largely unproven, and Mm -hmm. Russia currently has no experience or technology for shale gas production. For shale oil production, Russia has historically relied on Western technology. However, this reliance has been seriously impeded since 2017, 
when the United States introduced sanctions to ban American companies from providing shale oil extraction technologies to Russia. If Russia grabbed Ukraine's gas reserves, the same sanctions would almost certainly be imposed on shale gas production technologies. Still, let's, for the sake of Stephen's argument, assume that Russia desperately wants Ukraine's gas reserves. Even in this case, the emerging operations plan does not support the supposed goal. The majority of gas reserves east of the Dnipro River are located in Kharkiv and Poltava oblasts in the central east part of the country. The reserves start approximately 30 to 40 miles south of Kharkiv, pass through Poltava and stretch in a northwest direction towards Romney in Sumy oblast. There are no significant Natural gas reserves in Kiev or Chernev oblasts, Lugansk oblasts hosts only 1% of them, and Donek oblast has only shale gas. Consequently, if the goal of the invasion was the gas, the majority of Russian troops would have been accumulated on the Sumy-Kharkiv line to advance in the direction of Poltava. Instead, the initial main axes of advance have focused on Kiev and the southern southeastern part of the country, while Sumy and Kharkiv have seemed to play a secondary role. There is not even much justification for the march out of Crimea along the coasts of the Black and Azov Seas, as of seas, as they mm-hmm. host only four percent of Ukraine's natural gas reserves, mostly offshore, and some three hundred miles from the reserves in Poltava oblasts. Her conclusion wow. is there seems to be quite simply very little reason to believe that the true stakes of the war in Ukraine are the country's natural gas reserves. Ukrainian gas fields appear too small to justify the costs of the invasion, too hard to keep, and almost Mm. impossible for Russia to exploit. One of the few things Russia is not short on already is hydrocarbons. Right. And I found a good map on saw.earth, which is a mapping site. I don't know if anyone has seized that or uses it. I do from time to time. Mm. If you want to overlay sort of a, a... map of the invasion with a map of where the oil and gas reserves are right. in Ukraine. You can do that there. Yeah. And it and it it confirms what she's saying. So look, my summary is maybe, you know, as you said before, the decision to invade, if you're going to invade a country like this, the largest military operation that Europe has seen since World War II. Yeah, it's going to cost you a lot of money. Now maybe as the Western media likes to portray it, Putin thought it would all be over a lot quickly, uh, a lot faster right. than it has been. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, I, I stick to the fact that I think Putin's incredibly intelligent. He's not insane. He's not a dummy. Right. He's controlled yeah. Russia for nearly 25 years. Like he's, yeah. he's not stupid. I don't think he was given bad intel. I don't think he had bad information. I think my take on it is he, you know, I think every commander-in-chief who invades a country hopes it will be over quickly like George Bush hoped when he invaded Iraq and Afghanistan everyone wants to get in and out quickly Mm -hmm. you know the the Storm and Norman attack on Iraq in the in Gulf War one the classic in and out in six days or whatever it was that's what you hope to achieve but you know if I was Putin and I was planning this thing, I would go, okay, well, if everything goes perfectly, we'll be in and out quickly. You know, we'll, we'll hit them hard. Mm-hmm. Ukraine, will we'll bring them to the negotiating table. They'll negotiate uh, a treaty. Work it all out. They'll agree yeah. not to join NATO, and then we'll go home. 
Yes. Well, it's just like when Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812, <laughs> right? Right. He thought he'd defeat Alexander III's army quickly. Mm-hmm. There was there yes. was amassing on the border of Poland or slash the Duchy of Warsaw. Defeat him quickly, bring Alexander back to the negotiating table like he did at the Treaty of Tilsit a few years earlier, and they'd all go home and, and have croissants and tea. Yeah, yeah. Operation course, Lightning Strike. Yeah, didn't yeah. didn't work. Didn't work out no, the way things don't always no. work out the way you hope them to. Right, but, and you have to accept it. Yeah, but we saw this with Julius Caesar. You know, when he had Plan A, Plan B, Plan C. Mm. So Plan A is if if all goes well, we'll get in there quickly. Like so, yeah. We've talked about this before. How Obama and, and well, Trump and Obama in particular had said when they were respectively presidents. That mm-hmm. the U.S. didn't really have a lot of interests in protecting or defending Ukraine. You no. know, that was uh, Obama had, despite the coups that had happened, or the coup, one coup that happened during Obama's time in office and no. the other revolutions that he must have been somewhat responsible for that happened uh, during the, the the Arab Spring, et cetera. He had publicly said that the uh, the U.S. didn't have any interest in going to war over Ukraine. So Putin would have, I'm sure, hoped that the U.S. would rattle their sabers and make lots of angry statements, but would just stay the fuck out of it. He'd be able to bring Zelensky to the table and, you know, Bob's your uncle, get home. But he would have had, he would have known, of course, that. but they may not do that and they may get involved. Now, there are different scenarios for how they might get involved. They might send mm-hmm. a little bit of support uh, or yeah. they may send $150 billion <laughs> worth of support. Uh, right. Just open up the checkbook and say, you know, there is n- no Whatever you need. limit yeah. to this. Cluster yeah. bombs, sure. Yeah. You know, you know, Death Star, yeah, we're going to build it right now. Whatever you yeah. need, we're going to do it. So, yeah. you know, it turned out to be the worst case scenario for him right, when he right. went into this. But when you're planning for this stuff, you're going to go, okay, well, if we're going to go to the time and expense and the trouble mm-hmm. to defend our border from the incursion of the enemy and to, you know, bring the the government of this neighboring country back to the table to agree mm-hmm. on mutually agreeable terms for their future and their alliances that they're part of, you know, sure, if we can grab some gas and gas and oil sites, let's get right. it while we can. You know, if I'm going, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna put pants on, right? Yes, you, and go yeah, go down to the shops, do. which right. I rarely do. If I have to leave the well, comfort of the my shops, podcasting no seat, right, right. <laughs> if I have to leave the well-worn podcasting <laughs> seat, put pants on. <laughs> You know, if I have to go buy some heart medication, I'm also going to, well, while I'm here. Make a list, baby. Yeah, I'm going to buy some more scotch and some cheese. And I I might go, yeah. How can I turn this into the most efficient, worthwhile trip to the market that I can possibly, just writ large? Yeah. 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 Get out all those things that I've been meaning to do, and and I'll do them all in one hit. Exactly. as, as... uh, the lady from Rand points out, Christina Marchinek, Ukraine's reserves, whilst when you say things like they're the second largest in Europe, make them sound sounds, important. Yes, yes. yes. Compared but, to Russia's reserves, they're fuck a, all. 
It's a pimple. It's a pimple. But when you leave that out, you are not reporting. You are spinning. You are skewing. Yeah. You are leading the witness, yeah. as it were. Now, although, again, if I put my Putin hat on, I might be thinking, well, if I'm going to go to the trouble and expense and it's going to cost me a shit ton of money to do this and people are going right. to die and, you know, that's going to cause grief and all that kind Call of stuff. names. Yeah. I might as well take, try and take as many of those things as is practical to keep yeah. them out of the hands of others. Exactly. To keep Zero them out sense. of the hands of, of the U.S. oil and gas companies that probably want to get their hands on these. And, you know, I've said from the beginning, I think one of the reasons, I think the reasons why the U.S., provoked Russia into this, and they definitely provoked them by refusing to discuss Ukraine's entry into NATO. That's however you feel about whether or yeah. not they should be able to do that. Is That Feel-breaker. is a provocation. Yes. Part of the U.S.'s reasons, I mean, once one is they want to white ant Russia's sources of income wherever they mm-hmm. can their support wherever they can. It's their old containment strategy from the Cold War. Continue. They're trying to weaken Russia as much as possible with the end game of getting a pro-US friendly administration back in Russia like they had with Boris Yeltsin. Right. Yes. And so that's part of their rationale. The other part of their rationale is to build the US economic bloc where they have an open door to that country's resources, control Mm -hmm. of that country's government, and, you know, make sure that that country becomes part of the U.S. world banking system. So the country borrows money from U.S. banking suppliers and they stitch them up that all of the U.S. and also control of oil and gas to not only to Ukraine. So instead of Ukraine buying gas from Russia, they buy it from U.S. sources and U.S. allies. And mm-hmm. or they, they take control of the mining of the shale gas, the U.S. shale gas. They know they're running out of shale gas in the U.S. Where else has Our untapped markets. reserves of shale gas that we might be able to go and you know get paid billions of dollars to take it out of the ground and refine it? Oh, Ukraine, great. Well, we need yeah. to go and take control of that market. And, yeah, and, and Exxon, this was publicly announced, I think this week or last week, Exxon, executives from Exxon are in open public talks with the Ukraine about, look, you're busy with that whole war thing, but we're experts at going in and extracting as efficiently as possible without tearing up too much of your environment. Let us go in there. And like you said, they can sell it back to the West. They can sell it to Europe. America will benefit. Uh, the American corporation will benefit economically. And that's one less thing that Russia has. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a zero-sum game. And, you know, death by a thousand cuts. I might not be able to take you out yeah. straight away, but if I can weaken the foundation and you crumble, mission accomplished. It's still the hmm. same thing. Yeah. And, you know, again, Putin's no dummy. He knows exactly no. what they're trying to do. He sees what's coming. Yeah. And he studied, he studied history, despite yes. whatever you might think of Putin. He fucking knows his history. He's yeah. a student of history. He's like us, right? He's right. Ha- Just handsome. got a horse. Right. Yeah. Shirtless at times. Yeah. Yeah. But, okay, so to summarize that whole rant, I'd say to to suggest that Russia's invasion of both Crimea and Ukraine is all about getting their oil and gas reserves is a huge stretch. It may be part of the equation. Exactly. I'd say it's a lot less than that. I'd say it might be 5% of the equation 
Mostly um, national security. Hello. I mean, America has a doctrine about to the rest. We literally say to the rest of the world, the Monroe Doctrine, don't you even fuck think about coming into this part of the world. It's ours. We will blow you out of the air, water, whatever. So we have an entire doctrine about stay away from this part of the world. And we can't respect Russia's right to control their borders. So a little disingenuous, if you know what I mean. I'm going to talk more about Russia and Ukraine as we move on, but but mm -hmm. taking a break from a second, I want to give people a tip that I, I've been using for the last few weeks. It's oh, using please. chat GPT to de-bias an article. To, so, so instead of construct, you deconstruct? Yeah. Is that so okay? Here's a fun, here's a fun yeah. exercise, and we'll do it. I've done it before, but we'll do it live on air. So... I'm going to open up ChatGPT and I'm going to open the New York Times. So and I will, I'll pick a, a relatively random article about something. This is an article in the New York Times from today, 27th of July, your time, titled Ukraine's stepped up assault grinds forward, but scale is unclear. Kiev has intensified its counteroffensive against the Russian invasion, but has kept things murky on the size of the assault, the casualties, and what forces it still has in reserves. Now, I'm going to right. copy the URL for this article, go into ChatGPT, mm -hmm. go into mm -hmm. ChatGPT4 with plugins enabled, so I have the WebPilot plugin that can read web pages, and I'm going to write, please point out the bias contained Ooh. in this article and give it the link. Now it's gonna it's gonna churn away for a few seconds here. It's gonna mm -hmm. go read the article, sure, and then it's sure. going to tell me where the bias is in the article. I love no, that. It's gonna say, "I'm sorry, Cameron, but it seems there was an error while trying to access this article." Oh, that's because oh. it's the New York Times. Okay, you can't. It doesn't need a subscription. Okay, right. I'm gonna go to my sneaky archive.us. Uh, Archive.s, people, if you want to, if you want to read paywalled articles, go to Archive.s, stick the URL of the article in there and you'll normally find it there. Oh, cool. Okay. Sorry. Try this link. Did you say Get sorry? around that. I mean, I do subscribe. I do. I did apologize. Yes. Okay, um, I do subscribe to the New York Times, but apparently OpenAI does not have a subscription. Okay. Right. Someone get on that. Here are a few potential areas of bias. One, source mm -hmm. selection. The article uses a mix of sources, including Ukrainian, Russian, and Western analysts and officials. However, the article seems to rely more heavily on Ukrainian and Western sources, which could introduce a pro-Ukrainian or pro-Western bias. Two, mm. language and tone. The language used to describe the actions of the Ukrainian and Russian sides could potentially indicate bias. For example, the Ukrainian side is described as conducting a counter-offensive and stepped-up assault which could be seen as neutral or even positive terms. Yes. In contrast, the Russian side is described as having a daunting defensive network and conducting blistering artillery and aerial bombardments, which could be seen as negative. Three, presentation of facts and figures. The article provides specific numbers for the Ukrainian troops trained by the West and the equipment provided, but it does not show similar specifics for the Russian side. This could potentially create a bias by making the Western support for Ukraine seem more substantial than it is. Four, right. quoting officials. 
The article quotes US officials and President Putin, but the context and framing of these quotes could potentially introduce bias. For example, Putin's claims about Ukrainian casualties and losses are presented without evidence and are described as often inflated, which could create a negative impression of the Russian side. Five, depiction of events. The article describes the Ukrainian offensive as grinding through Russian defences, which could create an impression of Ukrainian determination and resilience. In contrast, the Russian side is described as feeling the pressure and having problems with logistics, supply, personnel and weapons, which could create a negative impression of the Russian side. Please note that identifying bias can be subjective and different readers may interpret the same text in different ways. So I like that selection of words. Yeah. So tip for people, you can start to use tools like ChatGPT to figure out, to start to learn where the bias is and how these news stories are crafted. You yes. must, I mean, journalists literally are yeah. literally taught at journalism school how to write a neutral article. The fact right. that this is not neutral shows that, it. Yeah. well, they're deliberately yes. writing this with a certain bias. And if you like, I, I, I don't know how long it will be, but I think it's not long before web browsers will have plugins that'll mm -hmm. just be, de, you know, de-bias every news article or highlight the bias in every news article I read. And it'll be able right. to run through this for you and show you the bias. And then what I've also done with ChatGPT is say, either find me an article talking about the same story, but with a different perspective. Oh, I like that. And it'll quite often find me something from China today or Russia today. And then it'll also point out that this article also has a bias, mm -hmm. but it's showing you reporting of the same story, same right. quote unquote facts but from a different perspective, which I find to be uh, quite an interesting exercise. Absolutely. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's like looking so, at a plant and then going to a different part of the room and looking at the same plant. It can look very different. It depends on what words and what tone you use and all that's crafted on purpose. Just like you said. Wow. A plant. Yeah. Thanks, Mitch. Yeah. No, because it has branches and leaves. It's complicated. It's not like it's a banana. You know, fuck you. Anyway, I don't need, to, I don't need this shit. I, I don't need, I do need this shit. Sorry. A banana tree. How's that? Instead of a plant, I'll put the two together. One of my favorite investigative journalists working what? in the US is Chris Hedges, followed Chris for many, many years. Mm -hmm. he, he, he writes on Substack these days. He had an article a couple of weeks ago called, They Lied About Afghanistan, They Lied About Iraq, and They're Lying About Ukraine. The U.S. public has been conned once again into pouring billions into another endless war. I want to read quite a bit of this article, actually, because it's worth going over. And then we'll, we'll, we'll sort of stop at different points and, and provide some commentary. He says, The playbook the pimps of war used to lure us into one military fiasco after another, including Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, now Ukraine, does not change. Freedom and democracy are threatened. Evil must be vanquished. Human rights must be protected. The fate of Europe and NATO, along with a rules-based international order, is at stake. Victory is Hell assured. Yeah. The results are also the same. The justifications and narratives are exposed as lies. The cheery prognosis is false. Those on whose behalf we are supposedly fighting are as venal as those we are fighting against. 
The Russian invasion of Ukraine was a war crime, although one that was provoked by NATO expansion and by the United States backing of the 2014 Maidan coup, which oosted the democratically elected Ukrainian president, Viktor Yankovic. Yankovic wanted economic integration with the European Union, but not at the expense of economic and political ties with Russia. The war will only be solved through negotiations that allow ethnic Russians in Ukraine to have autonomy and Moscow's protection as well as Ukrainian neutrality, which means the country cannot join NATO. The longer these negotiations are delayed, the more Ukrainians will suffer and die. Their cities and infrastructure will continue to be pounded into rubble. But this proxy war in Ukraine is designed to serve US interests. It enriches the weapons manufacturers, weakens the Russian military, and isolates Russia from Europe. What happens to Ukraine is irrelevant. First, equipping our friends on the front lines to defend themselves is a far cheaper way in both dollars and American lives to degrade Russia's ability to threaten the United States, admitted Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell when he could still speak. Right. Now listen to this next bit. This is again, this is Mitch McConnell speaking. Second, Ukraine's effective defense of its territory is teaching us lessons about how to improve the defenses of partners who are threatened by China. It is no surprise that senior officials from Taiwan are so supportive of efforts to help Ukraine defeat Russia. And this is the most important bit. Third, most of the money that's been appropriated for Ukraine security assistance doesn't actually go to Ukraine. It gets invested in American defense manufacturing. It funds new weapons and munitions for the U.S. armed forces to replace the older material we have provided to Ukraine. Let me be clear. This assistance means more jobs for American workers and newer weapons for American service members. Wow. Just put it right up there. There's a big truth bomb. Get a Mitch. We've been saying that for years, going right back to the Marshall Plan. After World War II, the beginning of the Cold War, most of the money allocated to the Marshall Plan, never left the United States. It was just funneled back into American manufacturers, into the American economy. It was was a clever way of taking taxpayer dollars and just giving it to American manufacturers in various electorates and saying, here you are, free money. Oh, you've got to send some old, got to send some old equipment that you've got to uh, somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it keeps the Pentagon going, but it makes me nervous. You're reading an article about Ukraine, Russia, America's part, and somehow China and war, the word war got thrown in there. That seems a bit of a reach to me. No? Well, that's next, obviously. Is oh, okay, it's provi- next on the dance card. Okay, yeah, well, I got you. Well, yeah, well, we've seen this. They, the same way yes. that they provoked Russia into invading Ukraine, they're mm-hmm. trying to provoke China to do something about Taiwan. You know, Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. Various U.S. senior government officials have gone to Taiwan. They're amping up their rhetoric around Taiwan, the, the Americans this is. They're trying to provoke China into doing something about Taiwan finally. So they can go, look, they're doing something about Taiwan. It was completely unprovoked. Yeah, oh my God, we got to stop it. We got to help these freedom loving people in Taiwan because that's one yeah. of the good guys. Got to keep reading Chris Hedges. Sorry. Once the truth about these endless wars seeps into public consciousness, the media, which slavishly promotes these conflicts, drastically reduces coverage. The military debacles, as in Iraq and Afghanistan, continue largely out of view. 
By the time the US concedes defeat, most barely remember that these wars are being fought. The pimps of war who orchestrate these military fiascos migrate from administration to administration. Between posts, they are ensconced in think tanks, Project for the New American Century, American Enterprise Institute, Foreign Policy Initiative, Institute for the Study of War, the Atlantic Council, and the Brookings Institution, funded by corporations and the war industry. Once the Ukraine war comes to its inevitable conclusion, these Dr. Strangeloves will seek to ignite a war with China. The US Navy and military are already menacing and encircling China. God help us if we don't stop them. These pimps of war con us into one conflict after another with flattering narratives that paint us as the world's saviors. They don't even have to be in innovative. The rhetoric is lifted from the old playbook. We naively swallow the bait and embrace the flag, this time blue and yellow, to become unwitting agents in our self-immolation. Since the end of the Second World War, the government has spent between 45 to 90% of the federal budget on past, current, and future military operations. It is the largest sustained activity of the US government. It has stopped mattering, at least to the pimps of war, whether these wars are rational or prudent. The war industry metastasizes within the bowels of the American empire to hollow it out from the inside. The US is reviled abroad, drowning in debt, and has an impoverished working class, and is burdened with a decayed infrastructure as well as shoddy social services. Wasn't the Russian military, because of poor morale, poor generalship, outdated weapons, desertions, a lack of ammunition that supposedly forced soldiers to fight with shovels, and severe supply shortages, supposed to mm. collapse months ago? Wasn't Putin supposed to be driven from power? Weren't the sanctions supposed to plunge the ruble into a death spiral? Wasn't the severing of the Russian banking system from SWIFT, the international money transfer system, supposed to cripple the Russian economy? How is it that inflation rates in Europe and the United States are higher than in Russia, despite these attacks on the Russian economy? Wasn't the nearly $150 billion in sophisticated military hardware, financial and humanitarian assistance pledged by the US, EU and 11 other countries supposed to have turned the side of the war? How is it that perhaps a third of the tanks Germany and the US provided were swiftly turned by Russian mines, artillery, anti-tank weapons, airstrikes and missiles into charred hunks of metal at the start of the vaunted counteroffensive? Wasn't this latest Ukrainian counter, which was originally known as the Spring Offensive, supposed to punch through Russia's heavily fortified front lines and regain huge swathes of territory? How can we explain the tens of thousands of Ukrainian military casualties and the forced conscription by Ukraine's military? Even our retired generals and former CIA, FBI, NSA and Homeland Security officials, who served as analysts on networks such as CNN and MSNBC, can't say the offensive has succeeded. And what of the Ukrainian democracy we're fighting to protect? Why did the Ukrainian parliament revoke the official use of minority languages, including Russian, three days after the 2014 coup? How do we rationalize the eight years of warfare against ethnic Russians in the Donbass region before the Russian invasion in February 22? How do we explain the killing of over 14,200 people and the 1.5 million people who were displaced before Russia's invasion took place? How do we defend the decision by President Vladimir Zelensky to ban 11 opposition parties, including the opposition Platform for Life, which had 10% of the seats in the Supreme Council? Ukraine's unicameral parliament, along with the Sharia Party, Nashi, Opposition Bloc, Left Opposition, Union of Left Forces, State Progressive Socialist Party of Ukraine, Socialist Party of Ukraine, Socialist Party and Vladimir Saldo Bloc. 
How can we accept the banning of these opposition parties, many of which are on the left, while Zelensky mm. allows fascists from the Svoboda and right sector parties, as well as the Banderite Azov Battalion and other extremist militias, to flourish? How do we deal with the anti-Russian purges and arrests of supposed fifth columnists sweeping through Ukraine, given that 30% of Ukraine's inhabitants are Russian speakers? How do we respond to the neo-Nazi groups supported by Zelensky's government that harass and attack the LGBT community, the Roma population, anti-fascist protests, and threaten city council members, media outlets, artists, and foreign students? How do we countenance the decision by the US and its Western allies to block negotiations with Russia to end the war, despite Kiev and Moscow apparently being on the verge of negotiating a peace treaty? I reported from Eastern and Central Europe in 1989 during the breakup of the Soviet Union. NATO, we assumed, had become obsolete. President Mikhail Gorbachev proposed security and economic agreements with Washington and Europe. Secretary of State James Baker and Ronald Reagan's administration, along with the West German Foreign Minister Hans-Dietrich Genscher, assured Gorbachev that NATO would not be extended beyond the borders of a unified Germany. We naively thought the end of the Cold War meant that Russia, Europe, and the US would no longer have to divert massive resources to their militaries. The so-called peace dividend, however, was a chimera. If Russia did not want to be the enemy, Russia would be forced to become the enemy. The pimps of war recruited former Soviet republics into NATO by painting Russia as a threat. Countries that joined NATO, which now include Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Albania, Croatia, Montenegro, and North Macedonia, reconfigured their militaries, often through tens of millions in Western loans, to become compatible with NATO military hardware. This made the weapons manufacturers billions in profits. It was universally understood in Eastern and Central Europe following the collapse of the Soviet Union that NATO expansion was unnecessary and a dangerous provocation. It made no mm -hmm. geopolitical sense, but it made commercial sense. War is a business. In a classified diplomatic cable obtained and released by WikiLeaks dated February 1st, 2008, written from Moscow and addressed to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, NATO European Union Cooperative, National Security Council, Russia-Moscow Political Collective, Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State, there was an unequivocal understanding that expanding NATO risked conflict with Russia, especially over Ukraine. This is a quote from the cable. Not only does Russia perceive encirclement by NATO and efforts to undermine Russia's influence in the region, but it also fears unpredictable and uncontrolled consequences that would seriously affect Russian security interests, the cable reads. Experts tell us that Russia is particularly worried that the strong divisions in Ukraine over NATO membership, with much of the ethnic Russian community against membership, could lead to a major split involving violence or, at worst, civil war. In that eventuality, Russia would have to decide whether to intervene, a decision Russia does not want to have to face. Dmitry Trenin, deputy director of the Carnegie Moscow Center, expressed concern that Ukraine was, in the long term, the most potentially destabilizing factor in US-Russian relations, given the level of emotion and neuralgia triggered by its quest for NATO membership, the cable read. Because right. membership remained divisive in Ukrainian domestic politics, it created an opening for Russian intervention. Trenin expressed concern that elements within the Russian establishment would be encouraged to meddle, stimulating US overt encouragement of opposing political forces, leaving the US and Russia in a classic confrontational posture. The Russian invasion of Ukraine would not have happened if the Western alliance had honoured its promises not to expand NATO beyond Germany's borders and Ukraine had remained neutral. The pimps of war knew the potential consequences of NATO expansion. War, however, 
is their single-minded vocation, even if it leads to a nuclear holocaust with Russia or China. The war industry, not Putin, is our most dangerous enemy. What Eisenhower said twice, yeah. If I could be pro-American for a second, after the wall comes down or begins to come down, was it 1992, or the, the Soviet Union starts to come to crack in 1992, it would be very easy for the Americans to go, aha, we got them on their knees, let's finish them off. Versus they're on their knees, they can't hurt us. Yes, we're going to have to check on all those nuclear missiles, but we've won, let's just go about doing business. But I, th I think it just America has a mindset. We don't, we don't know who we are unless we have an enemy, unless we have a main adversary. Right now it's Russia. I really, I think you're right in the future to be China, but I think we're a little lost if we're not fighting against something. Sometimes that's even amongst ourselves, but I think that's just the mentality that we have or that we have cultivated since the end of World War II. I, we, we, we need an adversary. We're lost without. What do you think? Yeah. And it's where the money is, you know, as I've hey, said over and over That doesn't hurt again. either. That doesn't hurt either. Tons of money the, to be made. The U.S. military industrial complex learned during World War II that, yeah. hey, there's a lot of easy money to be had if we yeah. have a big enemy that we can get the public to back us on. It's yeah. just an open checkbook policy exactly. between the federal People treasury and us. businesses women throw themselves at us if we're in uniform but it's, what's it's great they're, they're basically heroes they're modern day heroes in other countries like i've been watching that ted lasso i i don't think i truly appreciated how just how much the soccer stars are loved it's like oh it's an athlete no for them it's like oh my god you're the you're a huge celebrity you're the biggest celebrity i'll ever see you know over there it's Athletes. Over here, we have athletes, but it's also our soldiers because we've been ingrained to love and appreciate that they're willing to die for us. They're cogs in the, in the machine as well because you're right, it's all about making money and keeping those contracts going. But over here, we're conditioned to think so much more. And I learned a new term recently oh, for the right. foreign policy establishment in the US that drives all of this. This term was apparently coined by Ben Rhodes, who was a staffer in the Obama administration, and mm. it's the it's the blob. That's not, what it's referred to. It's not sexy. He could, mm. but I guess that it was not intended to be a compliment. I'm thinking. Yeah, no, he just referred to it as the blob, right. and you know, I, I guess it's a reference to the classic '50s horror movie the blob right this thing that just gobbles it. up everything yes. in its path just it says this is from wikipedia the blob is the term coined by ben rhodes staffer in the obama administration to refer to the foreign policy establishment which emerged in the united states following the end of the cold war members of the blob dominated the administrations of george hw bush bill clinton and george w bush members of the blob typically work as diplomats journalists or participants at think tanks Members of the blob are characterized by their support for neoliberal economics, international institutions such as the World Trade Organization, moderate domestic policies, and hawkish foreign policy. Prominent mm. members who have been thought of as belonging to the blob include Madeleine Albright, Tony Blinken, Max Boot, Hillary Clinton, Douglas J. Faith, Michelle Flournoy, Michelle, David Frum, Robert Gates, Robert Kagan, Bill Crystal, Leon Panetta, Samantha Power, James Rubin, and Paul Wolfowitz. 
So that's, I think that's a good term for the blob. Yeah. Yeah. It just keeps, I, I mean, literally like, and you made this point a billion times, but the, but the arms industry is so massive. They can literally afford to hire, create and hire think tanks. They pay these people a lot of decent money. They put out a lot of propaganda. And I, and I, and I really don't want to name this particular entity, but years ago, we got, Cam and I got a, a chance to do an advertisement. They were going to pay us. And, and there was something about Churchill. I can't remember. And we did the advertisement. There was a kind of a script. And then Cam gave his two cents on Churchill and his legacy. Cam wasn't wrong. It wasn't exactly complimentary, but he wasn't wrong. And then we got the contacts like, we won't be advertising with you anymore. Because again, they're literally trying to push a narrative. And if you go against that, they will either fight back or they will just like, we want nothing to do with you again. So these thing, think tanks literally make it possible so these writers or whoever can have someone to talk to and go, well, sources tell me that, you know, and it's just a bunch of people sitting around going, capitalism is good and everything else is bad. It's 100% it's bullshit, but it sounds official. I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just leave that right, right there. We're just going to leave that right. We're going to move on. But that's the thing. I, I, I couldn't like, I, I couldn't live with myself if I perpetuated no. the yeah, fake absolutely. mythology. No, I get it. About guys yeah. like Churchill. I mean, he yeah. was entertaining, no doubt, but was, you know, kind of a do shitty thing. Yeah. Don't, do not emulate his worldview. I just want to finish by. Uh, Quoting from another article, there's another news site that I've discovered relatively recently that I like oh. called geopoliticalmonitor.com. A bunch of independent geopolitical journalists. The, the site doesn't seem to have a bias. A lot of, you know, there's, there's pro, well, the, there's articles on there that'll give you the NATO threat justifying the invasion narrative. There are articles against it. So they, right. they, they seem to have articles covering both the, all different perspectives about geopolitical stuff. So it's fairly good. Yeah. Neutral. Right. Uh, you can Useful. find everything on there. And the, the, yeah. all of the authors, you know, experts in geopolitics, you know, various universities and that kind of stuff. Right. We, we've, we talked, I think, in our last episode about the Prigot mutiny. And oh, yeah. Yeah. the way it was sort of spun in the Western media is, oh, a sign of Putin's weakness. <laughs> He's in trouble now. Oh, yeah. The beginning of the end. And as I recall, when we talked about it, we said, we said a couple of things. One, it was over within 24 hours. That doesn't seem like weakness to me. It was cleanly no. done and over in 24 hours. Yes. That seems yes. like strength. And secondly... Right. All of these people in the West that are clamoring for the replacement of Putin in Russia, I think is misguided because what do you think comes next? Yeah. Like when you Not removed Saddam Hussein, did that work out well? When you mm. tried to remove the Taliban in Afghanistan, did that work out well? When you removed Gaddafi mm. in Libya, did that work out yeah. well? When you Chaos. tried to remove uh, Bashar in uh, Syria, did that work Syria. out well? These things yeah. tend not to work out well. But, you know, as, as Hedges said in his article, mm -hmm. we don't learn from history. We just keep playing the same playbook over and over again. It never works, yeah. but people don't seem to remember. The, 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 the media just has institutional 
amnesia around how badly right. this went last time. Let's just do it again and people will just go yeah. along with it, you know. They know where their bread is buttered. But if I could come back to something you said earlier, and this is a good example of that. When the war first starts and it's not over within a week, oh, Putin screwed up. He probably thought it was going to be a quick in and out. Now he's in trouble. Okay. Oh, now the Russian troops are being killed. And now it's like, oh, there was good. There was an almost coup. That taken the wrong point of view. Putin has survived all these things. You can't say these things almost brought him down. That's like saying almost being pregnant. It doesn't work. Putin is still in power. And of course, we don't know any of the details, but the people writing this stuff don't know. The people reporting it don't know the details either. But the point is, like you were saying a second ago, all these things have happened to Putin. This has been worth me going on for an over a year, but he's still in charge. That strength, he's got a firm hold on whatever the fuck is going on over there. It, I don't think he's like one slip up away from losing his life and his hundreds of millions of dollars that he's gotten various accounts all over the world. I, I think he's still in charge. It's his call yeah. to make. So when I read this article off geopolitical or bits of it from geopolitical monitors this is by alessandro mm -hmm. garridas he is open source intelligent analyst in international security and defense currently working in the counterterrorism group at paladin 7 in the u.s holds a master's mm -hmm. degree in diplomacy and conflict resolution from the university catholique de Louvain in belgium but mm -hmm. He wrote this article a few days ago called Russia, the Policy Implications of Progotson's Mutiny. Sort of mm -hmm. analyzes a lot of the Western narrative around this, but I just want to read a couple of paragraphs. He says, I believe the event shows that Putin's power system and Russia as a state are actually resilient. What underlies my conclusion is that rather focusing on what has happened, we should concentrate on what did not. One month after the events, Putin remains in power. Russia is still a unified state. And the fighting in Ukraine continues with no foreseeable end in sight. Putin's apparatus had to face a largely unexpected crisis, sustained the blow, and has so far managed to survive. This is almost mm. a handbook example of resiliency. Right. Quite Not literally, yeah. quite literally, at the end of the day, no top military or government official decided to switch sides and support Prigozhin, in contrast to what he had likely expected or at least hoped. Yeah, And this is his summary. To begin with, even if Putin is ousted, it is well possible that his successor will not be a pro-democracy pacifist, but instead a hardliner ready to escalate the conflict. Similarly, yes. if Russia falls into chaos, and especially into civil war, Ukraine would probably win. However, new major challenges would also likely arise in the form of refugee, refugee flows as well as mm -hmm. criminal organizations and external powers exploiting the power vacuum. This would also imply serious nuclear proliferation risks, as Russia's vast arsenal would no longer be under the command of a single centralized entity, but rather mm -hmm. scattered among multiple newborn polities or rebel and non-state armed groups, potentially raising the prospect of nuclear smuggling. Right. So not it's not good. This idea no. that we'll just create chaos in Russia and yeah. get rid of Putin and it'll all be rainbows and pixies and unicorns is but, really, really stupid. But you're absolutely right. But in the West, because we're given a simplified, skewed version of what's going on, we think that simple solutions are possible when you're absolutely right. It doesn't work that way. What's that saying? Be careful what you wish for. You just may get it. We'll have to see what happens because you're right. It would, it would be even worse. And 
there could be civil war. You got nuclear missiles. Oh my God. It could get so much worse than it is. Yeah. It just seems very short-sighted. I'm sure the blob thinks, well, there'll be money to be made, you know, either we'll way, arm both sides. Yeah. If there's a civil yeah. war, we'll arm both sides yeah. of that. We'll arm all of the countries on their borders to defend themselves yeah. against the civil war. What, what can possibly, well, nuclear war well, might happen. Sure. But you know, yeah. but if it doesn't, uh, they're trying to palpatine it. They're trying to control both sides or at least influence and make money from both sides. If possible. Yeah. That's all I've got for this episode of the bullshit filter, mm -hmm. Ray, any final oh, comments you want to make? Just, just one last thing because she can't stand for Mitch McConnell to have the news. Nancy Pelosi was in the middle of a whatever hearing me. I don't know what the fuck is going on. And she literally just kind of lost it for a couple of seconds. And someone just said, just vote, Nancy, just vote. It's all on camera. You can go see it. So a, another elderly person who should not be in charge of helping run America needs to retire. So, but they got a lock on it. But so it's, it's going to be interesting seeing what happens and who falls first. What could possibly go wrong when you put a bunch of geriatrics in control of a major economy? Nothing. I can't think of a single thing. I'm out. All right. Bullshit. 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 Bullsh